You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I want to just share some story with you today. Um, I do travel around the country right now, mostly helping churches understand all the cultural changes going on. Um, and really to rethink what church might look like in that context. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is a much wackier place than it used to be, agreed? Lots of stuff going on. Church doesn't quite know how to respond. And so uh, what you see a lot of is more of a circle the wagons approach and just hope Jesus comes back real fast (laughs) before we have to figure out what to do. But um, I will tell you that in in most churches I work with, all I do, especially like when you have a church that's that's over 100 years old, what a beautiful, I mean, and I'm a part of your story, like you inspired me in, in some ways. But to think about the legacy of this church, um, realizing, yeah, you're caught in an interesting time again, and so your, your pastoral leadership have been very courageous to let somebody like me in, but really, even before me, it was the processing of, look, this church has always had a powerful story. And it ebbs and flows depending on what's going on in the world at that time, but um, all you have to do to revive a church is to find the ancient links to the original. And if you ever go back and you read the story of the people that started UPC, you're going to find people that had incredible sacrifice of their time for people. They were not afraid of the world. They dove in. They were courageous. And they learned how to relate human to human. It wasn't, they didn't just set up a church and hope people came. In fact, almost every church, when you read the story, they were a missionary team that were called to an area and they went, we will engage the culture. We're not going to wait for the culture to come to us. Um, And so this is nothing new. We're going to talk about the original, the person of Jesus and what that means, his original incarnational story. Um, But if you've ever, you know, if, if you see the plumes of smoke and you think that somehow you can avoid it and that somehow you can shield your own children from this, you're not going to be able to. It's coming, right? It's coming to a theater near you, whether or not you live in the Northwest or the Midwest or Texas. People in Texas think it's not coming. It's coming, okay? And uh, you have to respond differently when it hits you personally. The, uh, the marijuana stuff, it kind of hit me personally. I, was, uh, I don't want to tell you the story of this, but I was chaperoning my daughter to a tattoo parlor. Like I said, I don't want to talk to you about that. <laughs> made some mistakes as a parent, but... Um, I met uh, our tattoo artist, Sean. Sean, I learned later, spent uh, 12 years in the state pen for murder. He was your classic tattoo guy, atheist, very dark. Um, But I just fell in love with him the first time I met him, and I knew something would happen with his life. And so um, I went back time and time again. I had to yield a portion of my body to him. (laughs) And uh, don't worry, at my age, it just doesn't, nothing matters anymore. Just just a good way to hide unsightly wrinkles or fat pockets, okay? (laughs) So so I kept going back about 10 sessions in. Sean never really smiled, but on this time I came in the door and and Sean was smiling. And I, I just remember like, wow, this is weird today. He looks happy. And uh, he said, hey, he called me the Rev. Hey, Rev, before we get started, I, I just want, I want to give you a gift today. And I was taken back, and uh, he goes, just so you know, Joy, my wife, who she works there with them, she said, whenever we see your name on the calendar, we just kind of get excited. And I don't know if you know this, but you've become kind of like a brother, a dad. He said, like a sensei to me. And uh, he said, by the way, we love your wife and your two daughters. Are ma- it had become a family affair. I, again, I don't want to get into the whole thing. <laughs> Um, 
And he goes, we just love your whole family. So he, he's got his hands behind his back. And he goes, so I just want to give you something. So I put out my hands to receive. And he hands me a big bag of high-grade marijuana. <laughs> so as a good missionary, I've learned to receive whatever is given to me graciously. And I said, thank you. He goes, I don't know what you pastors do with this stuff. But um, so you guys want to know what I did with the stuff? Uh, we bought this little horse ranch, and my wife started buying chickens, and some of them weren't producing. <laughs> so I, I removed the ones that were not producing, and it freaked out the other ones. They stopped, all chickens stopped production when they saw what I did with these other two chickens. And so I just remembered the bag, and so I sprinkled. I figured maybe these chickens just need to chill out a little bit. Just, <laughs> maybe they're just, the PSTD is just too hard. We're just going to help them over the line. So I sprinkled out a little... And in two days, full production, everybody. <laughs> uh, if you ever wondered, God made the plant. I don't know what for, but maybe that was one of the reasons. So. <laughs> but interestingly, Sean also gave me uh, the idea to write a book that we brought for you called Flesh. So I was asking Sean, I said, why do, you, why do you think the body art stuff has taken off so much in the country? And he began to share some thoughts, and they were so good, I asked him to stop, asked him for a pen so I could write it down. But essentially said... Um, he starts off, our flesh matters more than anything else about us. Our flesh is us to others. It's what they see. And he talked about how our, our skin is able to bend and move in really thousands of different ways. So people see our emotions literally just through our face, even before we even say it. It's like he said, our skin is the way that we do the most important form of communication. And he kept going on and on. I was like, this is amazing stuff. I began to think about Jesus in the flesh. And I remember writing down, I just, I thought that the idea of the incarnation, uh, God becoming a human, is really the most important doctrine in the New Testament. We oftentimes don't think about that. The incarnation is like what we experience around Christmas, baby Jesus stuff, right? He came in this baby form and we celebrate it. We think it's kind of cute, but we don't know the power of it. That's why oftentimes if you ask people, why did Jesus come to earth? We always go to the cross. Well, Jesus came to die for our sins. And for sure, that's probably, I guess, the most important reason. Because if he doesn't die for the sins of all of us, then we don't even have a chance to live, to live eternally or to even live well down here. But if I were to ask you, are there any other reasons why Jesus might have come to earth? Sometimes we're not sure. And I want to submit this to you. I think in Jesus' mind, the other reason why he came was to teach us how to be human again. That he came to be an archetype of our new humanity that we would understand what it is to live and to breathe and move in the world that doesn't believe what we believe or share our orientations or whatever. And he, his way of life was to actually show us how to do that. And so John 1.14 is the classic incarnational scripture. It says this, and so the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. And so it said, and so we perceive the glory of God. If you want to know why he came it wasn't to make religion. I don't think there's anything in the New Testament that would tell us that Jesus intended to start a thing called Christianity. I think he came into the earth because there was too much religion. And he understood as he watched people try to struggle out an understanding of who God would really be, he went, they can't figure it out. They just, they have their own ideas of what God is and they, they got it all muddled up in all this law and all this to-dos and all this other stuff. So he comes in human form. And he moves into the neighborhood, 
And he lived how many years before he started talking? 30 years. Amazing theological idea that he moved into our neighborhood. And because we saw how he was with people, those crazy people, we saw how he related with them and how he didn't do what we thought he should do with them. It, he wasn't like we would be with them. That people were drawn to him by the thousands. Like, it was amazing. Like His humanity was the best thing that people had ever seen. And so a movement began to move. And stuff started to happen because people took his human life as seriously as they took the cross. See, if you just let Jesus stay on the cross... And most churches will have a cross somewhere, and sometimes it's the physical form of Jesus on the cross. If you focus on the resurrection, it will move you to tears, right? It moves you to want to come and worship and to come to church. But if you just keep him on the cross in your life, if he's just your savior, you don't really have to follow him. But if you let him come off the cross and you take his 33 years as an example, as a story that we get to follow, then when you let him off the cross, his eyes open up. He's not like this anymore. His eyes open up, and he has facial expressions. He, he begins to speak and move amongst people, and now he's not just somebody to worship. He's somebody that you get to follow. And this is why he said, go and make disciples. And disciples, in our mind, for many of us, was that we, we would teach people things or concepts about him. But when Jesus said, go and make little me's, he actually was saying, teach people to live like I lived, not just know things about me. And so you hear the Apostle Paul will say, I've been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who, what? Live. But it's Christ who now, what? Lives in me. So it's not just about what we know. It's literally that to picture Jesus getting to live you is the power of the incarnation. And so Pastor George said, what would it look like if we had incarnational communities all over the city of Seattle, all represented in this family we call UPC? That's what he meant. Not just small groups that do Bible studies, but groups of people that go, look, you and me and seven other friends, let's live the humanity of Jesus right where we live and let's see what happens. And this is really the story of our life. And I want to share maybe just three incarnational ideas that may help you as you begin this journey again for some of you. Some of you, um, maybe you're actually in here today and you go, uh, I'm actually not a believer, so don't put me in that camp. Um, I just stumbled in here. I would say the incarnation hopefully will still be a powerful story for you because I know from my personal experience it's hard to figure out God when you look at religion or you look at church or you look at Christians. Those are oftentimes they actually sometimes make it harder to really find God. When you look at just Jesus, the human, you will find God. Jesus actually said, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. So all, if, you know, what about all this Old Testament? What about the way you guys act today? What about everything I see? Don't worry about it. Just look at the human Jesus and you will find exactly what God is like. And I think in, in him you will find great hope. But here's a couple pointers. For those of us that are inside, we'll call this inside doc stuff. The beginning of incarnation is simply to take a step in, jump back in to humans. Um, I was pastoring back in Denver and um, I shared with the first group, I normally loved our church gathering, but every once in a while you have a bad day. The last three people to stand in line to talk to me and tell me how great the sermon was uh, actually did not want to talk about that. One wanted to talk about how our music went too long and it was too loud. 
One wanted to talk about something related to, I think the duct tape fell off their kids at Children's Church, so they were afraid that their children was abducted. And uh, the third was upset that we didn't provide gluten-free cracker options for the communion table. So, so Monday morning, I woke up with a little bit of a crank in my spirit. And I was complaining to my wife, like, I'm out. I'm, I'm quitting. <laughs> I'm done with these people. And she said, just relax. Just go find your other people, your new, you know, new people. She knew I do better with people that don't know Jesus. Um, and so there was a little yoga commercial going on on the TV set at the time. So I'm like, fine, I'll go be a yoga person. She's like, whatever, just do what you have to do. <laughs> so I, I did. I went down to a sporting goods store, and I bought this little intro yoga pack. And it had a little mat that you roll out. It had a leotard system for men. And I went home, and I cut my toenails. And I went off to my first yoga class. And I met this guy named Justin, tatted from the neck down, amazing feature of a person. Uh, we became friends for a few months, and uh, I was off speaking somewhere uh, to the largest denomination in America about incarnational leadership. And I thought it was going well, but um, on the way home in the Atlanta airport, there was a CNN uh, show on the TV screen. People were just kind of watching it. And it was pastors all over the country, led by the leader of this denomination, that were condemning the practice of yoga. And I remember watching people's faces like, oh, that's great, there, there the Christians go again just condemning people's sins and whatever. And uh, so I went home and went to a yoga class that night, and Justin was there, and he's, he called me the Rev as well. He goes, hey, Rev, do you see that TV show? I was like, yeah, I saw it, Justin. I was in the airport. He goes, um, that's great, your people. It's really helpful. <laughs> and uh, I had to apologize. I'm like, yeah, I, I know a lot of our people are afraid of anything that's not us. And uh, he goes, so why do you come? And I made up a little fib. I told him I liked it. I actually hate it. It's miserable. They jack the heat up, and they make you stretch. <laughs> so that, that's yoga, if you ever are interested. Um, I don't know about you, but stretching is not a real big deal for me, okay? I don't like it. Um, but I said, you know, Justin, I'd love to hear your story. Like, what got you into this? How much of this is physical for you? How much is personal? How much is just a job? And he uh, said, I'd love to tell you. And so we went out for dinner and uh, got to know his story, became friends. Lost track of him because he went and joined another studio across town. I kind of, sometimes that's what you do in incarnation. You, you view it as outreach, so you do it for a little bit, and then you, when people leave, you just, you don't think about it. You just, but on this occasion, I remember praying one morning, God, I just, I want to see your power again. And I actually said, I sign up for duty again, God. So who do you want me to pray for? This was a couple of years later. I remember immediately Justin's name and face came to mind. So I said, okay, Lord, I, I pray for Justin today. Somehow, if you could connect me. And um, then I forgot about the prayer, went off to work out. I'm at a Jamba Juice just three hours later in a town of two million. And guess who's standing in line right in front of me? It's Justin. So I pinched him on the... And uh, turned around, he gave me a big hug. He goes, dude, I was thinking about you this morning. I was like, yeah. Now just think about this, guys. This, before you came to faith in Jesus, God was sending people to you, right? They were real humans. They came alongside you at unique times, and they helped you find the story. I think when we see the world being as wacky as it is now, we just assume nobody's interested. And yet, believe me, they're all interested. They're all trying to find their way. They're all trying to make sense of God and life. And here was Justin, and now we've become great. We meet every other week now. 
and uh, invited me to actually do a yoga class in front of all of the professional yoga instructors in Denver. And I, obviously, I did not want to do that, but he said, I read your book, Brimstone. I want to interview you. You talk about Jesus really interestingly. So we did an interview in front of all these yoga instructors. And when we were done, the very last woman came up and she said, um, she goes, I run the, the teaching, the spiritual teaching for all the yoga instructors here in Denver. She said, I've never heard anybody talk like that. Uh, about Jesus. She said, would you be willing to come and teach that stuff about Jesus to our yoga instructors? You see, when you look at the story of how do we engage, we just, we look at what we see and we just go, nobody's interested. And yet I think people have just been put on their heels by religion and by people that don't respond to them as Jesus would. It's all out there. So you've got to dive in to people again, stop overthinking and you've got to stay in. For Cheryl and I, um, we don't have, to, we never have had time or energy to go do outreach. We just, no interest in that. Because Ryan sees her mostly at night, and so there may be maybe an hour of sleep a night, and then I would go off to house paint. But I remember Cheryl just going, babe, we can open up our house. She also said, we've got to eat 21 meals a week. So we thought, let's just try to give seven of those meals away a week to people that don't know Jesus. Let's just eat with people, kind of this story. Let's just do what Jesus did. And uh, we, we bought some rocking chairs from Walmart, put them out on our front porch. We'd have coffee every day at 4 o'clock as neighbors would be coming home. And uh, we just began to do that with whatever little thing we had. And God built a church in Portland out of that and a church out of Denver with normal people, not paid pros. A guy that felt like I'll never actually be in ministry. But God just began to draw people into this when you use whatever you have. So being missional and incarnational isn't about adding anything to your life. It's just seeing everywhere you're at as a mission field, okay? But the key really of incarnation is you take on the reputation that Jesus had. And his business card said, friend of sinners. And nobody understood how a God could be a friend of sinners. Sinners, of course, are those other people, right? They're not us. Uh, there are those people that are getting what they deserve. And so maybe it's more loving to just judge them and stand back. And yet Jesus, it's a crazy story. You have the most holy man that's ever lived in front of people. No sin in him. And yet in the form of Jesus, it was the first person that never judged them. He actually said, like the yoga story, I did not come into the world to do what? I didn't come in to condemn or get on TV and point out people's sins. I came to save. And so here he is again. He's the most holy and least judgmental person the world's ever seen. I just put those together and go, if we're disciples of Jesus, the Christian movement should probably be the least judgmental movement the world has ever run into. And you have the most righteous person. And yet when he was with people who were sending their faces off, they didn't pick up that aroma of self-righteousness. You know what self-righteousness is, right? It's when you think your sins are not as bad as somebody else's sins. And this is the primary reason around the world why people are not interested in us. It's not that they're not open to our truth. They just think that we are self-righteous. And they can't take it anymore. I was, a uh, funny story. I was uh, driving down the road the other day. And six cars in a row, I noticed that people were not driving. They were all texting. And I got angry, and the last one, we come up to a stoplight, and it's a little high school girl, and she's, like, checking her music or whatever. And I'm looking for, I don't, I'm not normally a violent man, but I'm looking for a paper cup. I was going to roll down the window and water up and freak her out. Just go, stop it. Drive the car. 
And right before I was about to throw it, I got a text, so I was like. <laughs> okay? That's self-righteousness. That's, hey, you who do not share our sexual orientation, your sin's just bad enough, we gotta come after you. But we're gonna, in the meantime, overlook our own heterosexual issues. And on down the road, you just watch Jesus. He, uh, we oftentimes think we have to like stand up for truth or stand up for God. We have to either pick a side, we gotta condone or condemn, but Jesus gives you a third option, and that's just eat with people. And somehow he knows that when you become a friend, friends like to hear from their friends and they'll respect the opinion of a friend, but they, in other words, the world is still looking for truth. They just want truth to come from a friend. And at the end of the scripture that I love is my favorite, it says, and Jesus came eating and drinking. Before that, it said John the Baptist didn't come drinking, right? He was trying to like keep it pure. But the son of man came eating and drinking. And so we called him a drunk and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then at the very end, we oftentimes don't read the rest of it. It says, and wisdom is proved right by its results. So if we look at the way that we have been Christians and we go to church and we try to be moral ourselves and then we try to impose that morality upon the world, we, we see, we look in the basket, we go, there's not a lot of fruit there. When you look at the life of Jesus, he just, he never seemed to get into the messes we get into. He just ate with person after person and hearts began to change and he knew behavior never changes till you change a heart. And you can't change a heart by putting a finger in somebody's chest. This is why Jesus it says when he came into the world, he came as the light, right? And then later, as part of our job description, he says, and so you are children of light. Remember, he's the firstborn over all creation. So we become the next offspring. And so you be children of light. And you don't have to worry. If the world gets darker and darker, relax. Because that just makes light shine a little bit lighter. But light doesn't need to scream at darkness and go, stop being dark. Light just literally needs to be light. And you see it works, guys. My, uh, my family right now is considering a move to a place where I don't wanna go because we have a heart for some people that are much more hurting than the people that we live around. And I don't wanna move there, but um, we ran it by our daughters who are 20 and 22 now, kind of thinking that they would go, Dad, Denver's awesome. What we have is awesome. We're imp mom and you know, showing our empty nesters now. Ryan's off in an assisted living center, so we don't have to really do what we used to do. We can actually enjoy life, ride some horses, kill some chickens, whatever it is. <laughs> but they said, the youngest, who's 20, said, Dad, uh, the best times of our life has been when we've been on mission together as a family. Remember the story. This, we are a story-formed people. We are not just the people, as George said, of the sermon. We are not just the people of the church. We are followers of Jesus Christ, who gave us not just a new lease on life through the cross, but he gave us a new way to live. Jesus took on our flesh to reach us. And it is time that we take on his flesh and see what he does with some of those dear people around us. Amen? Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.